So just over a year ago, I was driving home, and as I was driving, all of a sudden I noticed these pretty colored lights behind me flashing. <laughs> and so I pulled over, and next thing I know, there was this nice gentleman next to my window, and I recognized by his badge and his uniform uh, the authority of this man. He was a law enforcement officer. And uh, he notified me that I was speeding. And then uh, he exercised his authority by issuing me a speeding ticket. And then he wanted to emphasize a message uh, as he was getting ready to leave. Guess what his message was? Slow down, slow down. So we can say that his authority was recognized, his uh, authority was exercised, and his message was definitely emphasized. And even to this day when I'm in certain zones, I'm like, I remember that moment. I'm like, oh yeah, I got to slow down because it was the message that was more important than what he did. I'm sure all of us can relate to that, similar situations. Um, I had one person come up to me and go, yeah, yeah, I was pulled over on the way to church this morning. Uh, like, oh man, and they didn't get off either. So um, but there's times in your life when someone, an authority figure, a, a parent, teacher, a boss, an employer, a judge, a law enforcement officer, someone who had an authority that you recognized had to exercise that authority in your life, but there was a message behind it. There was a message that they were trying to emphasize. That's exactly what we're going to see as we look again at the life of Jesus Christ and his ministry today. Because Jesus came to earth with an urgent message, a message of good news, that God is offering forgiveness of sin. God is offering freedom from sin through Christ. He's saying that you can spend eternity in heaven, that you can be part of God's family, that you have worth and value, and meaning, and that you can be a part of God's work to build his kingdom. A message that says you can have a relationship with God that's both a present reality that also has a future hope. Like, what a great message. My ticket, it was bad news for me, but Christ's message is good news for all. And Jesus, who's both God and man, demonstrated his ultimate and supernatural authority during his ministry on earth. And one of the ways he did that was by the miracles that he uh, performed when he was here. We could say that the authority of Jesus was recognized, that the power of Jesus was exercised, so that the message of Jesus could be emphasized. And the miracles we see from Jesus were to validate his message, so that we would know his message is true, so when we think of Christ and we think of living for Christ, we should really major on the message and minor on the miracles. That's our focus today as we open up our Bibles uh, again to the book of Luke chapter 4 and continuing the series, Jesus, God, and Man. So open up your Bibles or fire up your Bible apps to Luke 4. We're going to be in verses 31 through 44. And as you're turning there, uh, just as a way of reminder for those of you who are watching online or here, or if you're a guest to kind of get you up to speed, uh, here's the snapshot from the last few weeks. Jesus, God in the flesh, has launched his public ministry. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's been tempted by the devil. He's been rejected by the people of his hometown, Nazareth. And today we see him continuing his teaching and preaching and healing tour 
through the region of Galilee. And as you see here, here's a map of the region of Galilee. And here's just a, a photo of what that region looks like. Just envision Christ walking along the coastal towns, uh, preaching and teaching and performing his miracles. And then we're going to look at that. But before we dive in, let's go ahead and pause and just ask God to be with us and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open your word. And God, I thank you for those watching online right now. I thank you for those in this room that either call CVC home or are guests today. And Lord, all of us come with some need, some, some need for an encouragement, some need of instruction, Lord, so that we can live out the life that you've called us to and live in relationship with you better. And so, Lord, I pray for belief for those who do not believe in you as Savior. I pray for encouragement for those here that know you, that today will encourage them. And we pray for protection. Lord, would you protect us from distraction? and from doubt or hardness that might get into our hearts, Lord, so that we can listen and learn well. Not just with the ears on our head, but the ears of our heart. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Amen. So as we jump into Luke 4, 31, uh, we're picking right back up where Jesus had just left his hometown of Nazareth. And verse 31 says this, He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So Jesus leaves the hills of Nazareth and travels down. Literally, it's 680 feet beneath sea levels where you'll find the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. And this is a small agricultural fishing community. They estimate the population was right around about 1,500 people on the northern shore of Galilee. Capernaum became the home base for Jesus during his ministry. Uh, it's one of my favorite places to stop. Here's an aerial shot of what they've excavated so far at Capernaum. They've only excavated 25 to 30% of Capernaum. It is one of my favorite stops when we take our Israel study tour, which by the way, uh, we're, we're leaving in October. There's still spots left if you're wanting to go to Israel with us. So you can go to that link and register or find out more information. But as they've excavated this town, uh, they have discovered a synagogue, which we believe is the synagogue where these events happen. It's so cool to be able to go to a place or at least read about or look at a place that's real. It's, the Bible's not fiction. It's not myth. And so when they excavated the synagogue, uh, they reconstructed part of it. The reconstructed part's from the 4th century. So that's what we see. But if you go to the side and look at the excavation line, we know that Jesus was there in the 1st century. And so you see the white stone, which is the actual material from the 4th century synagogue. But the dark stone is the actual foundation of the 1st century synagogue where these events took place. So this is a real place. You can stand where this really happened, the events we're about to read about. And so Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath word in Hebrew is Shabbat. This is a day of rest. It's very special to the Jewish people, the most special day of the week from Friday night to Saturday night. And he's teaching, but his teaching is different. It's different than what people are typically used to from the local rabbis or scribes. Look at verse 32. It says that they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed what? Authority. So through his teaching, the authority of Jesus was recognized. The people were astonished. They were absolutely amazed at how Jesus taught them. Why? Because most rabbis and scribes would never insert personal authority when they taught. So the typical Jewish rabbi or, or leader a scribe, synagogue leader, they would read from a, a, the scrolls of the Old Testament. And then what they would do to give support to their teaching is they would just uh, quote the commentary of other well-known and respected rabbis. 
And so it's kind of, here's the text, and then here's all this information about what other people say about it. Uh, Rabbi Gamaliel says this about this passage. Um, Rabbi Shammai has said this about the passage. They would not use personal authority, but when Jesus taught, he used personal authority. Think for a second in Matthew 5, when Jesus teaches a Sermon on the Mount. He was saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Right? And so these people are stunned because here's Jesus. He's opening up the word of God. He's reading from it. And he's inserting personal authority about what to do with this. This was definitely fresh and unique. They were hearing the voice of a man, yet it was the words of God. And so we see this, for example, through the teachings of history. That's why we as Christians put the words of Christ as our authority. We don't, we don't take a spiritual leader as our authority, not tradition, but Jesus. So we may reference other pastors or commentators or theologians in our teaching for support or insights or clarity, but it's the Word of God. It's the words of Christ that are our ultimate authority. Amen? The Word of God. And so the people listening that day recognized Christ's authority in that moment. But they weren't the only one that recognized Christ's authority. Look what happens next. Verse 33. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you do do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Like you have to understand this moment. They're in a synagogue in a service, and this is a disruption. So imagine coming to church today, and, and I'm teaching, and as you guys are all settling in, and we're worshiping, and, and all of a sudden I come up here, and I'm going to teach the text, and we're all sitting here relaxing, and then all of a sudden, you know, from the back row over here, I'm going to sit with you guys for a minute, okay? How's it going? Hey, I like the notes in your Bible. That's pretty good. Okay. Anyways, we're sitting here in church, and all of a sudden, some guy's like, hey, 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 pastor, you know what? Cut it out. Like, we know you love Jesus. We know you're trying to keep us out of hell, get us into heaven. We know you're trying to teach us God's word. But look, would you just leave us alone? Would you just let us live our life and stop preaching at us? Like, what would happen in that moment uh, in the tension of the room? By the way, don't get any ideas. <laughs> we have security around here, all right? And what if that happened? And I just you know, looked at this guy and said, I need you to sit down and be quiet or leave. Now we're emotionally engaged in what just is taking place, right? Because this man stood up, he disrupted. It says he did so in a loud voice, and then Jesus engaged him. And Jesus spoke with authority. Now, uh, here's what we have to do, because we realize that this is a demon-possessed man. This man is, is inhabited by a demon. So this is where we have to slow down a little bit and talk about probably one of your most favorite subjects, demonology, right? Because we need to inform some of you for the first time, or to remind some of you that need a refresher about the spiritual realm. See, we live in a world that both has a natural and a supernatural reality. 
And one of the problems is that we tend to be people of extremes. So one extreme would be over here where we're like, no, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in angels and demons and the devil. That's just primitive. That's mythological thinking. Uh, I'm not going to give any credit to bad things that happen in my life or happen in the world to this you know, supernatural stuff. There's, there's this side of the spectrum. Then over here is this other side of the spectrum. Like a demon's behind everything. Every bad experience, there's a demon of something there. Every bad event in my life, uh, you know, the devil made me do it. There's a demon in my toaster because I burnt my bagel. You know, like you got this over here, like the, the demonic's getting too much credit. And it's easy in a Western American, media-driven, religiously eclectic community that flirts with the occult to either fixate on the demonic or to just dismiss it. Because we see it get a lot of playtime on our screens and in the pages of our books. But just as God is real, the devil is real. And there are both good and bad angelic beings. I've encountered them. Some of you have encountered them. This is a reality. Now, I just want to touch on some brief but basic demonology here uh, as we're on the topic. First is this. Let's make sure we know who we're talking about. The devil was a created angel that rebelled against God and was expelled from heaven. When you talk about the God, uh, when we talk about God and the devil, we don't have two equal and opposing beings battling it out to see who's going to win. There's the yin, the yang, who's going to win. God is unlimited in power. He's already won the victory over the devil. Now he's just letting it play out. The end of the book has already been written. And God uh, did create this angel who rebelled, who became the devil, which means slanderer, Satan, which means adversary. And this is where we just have to kind of go, God, I don't know why you let him lose to do what he does, but in his sovereignty, he allows this disobedient creature to have a limited amount of influence and control in this world which must drive the devil nuts because God often will use his limited power and control to uh, give God glory and purpose sometime. He'll flip it. He'll convert it to uh, give God glory. We know that one day that the devil and his works um, will be assigned to hell for eternity. Scripture says that about a third of the created angels in heaven rebelled with Satan. These are the ones we call demons and have received the same sentence as the devil but for now have temporary and limited access to earth. Let's look, at, let's look a little closer at these beings. Although they are supernatural beings with abilities and insights and strength that's greater than humans, demons, which would include the devil, have limited power. They're not omnipotent. They cannot be in more than one place at a time. They're not omnipresent. And they do not know everything or have the ability to read our minds. They're not omniscient. These are characteristics that belong to God alone. You've never seen these abilities described or applied to demons ever in the Bible, only to God. And although portrayed on paper and on screens as dark and sinister creatures, we know that they're actually master imposters. Scripture says that they disguise themselves as God's workers, as angels of light. And so that's why they, they gravitate toward false doctrine. They want to convince us and deceive us. We know the agenda of the devil and demons because just like devil and demons begins with the letter D, a lot of the items on their agenda also begin with D. Death, destruction, deception, disunity, disruption, discouragement. We know, that, we know their agenda. 
Also, uh, we know some of the things that attract demonic activity based on experience and even scriptural understanding. These are some of the things that attract demonic activity. Involvement in occultic practices, such as seances and Easter meditation and tarot cards and Ouija boards and things like that. Uh, involvement in false religions and cults. Like they love false doctrine and false teaching, so they're definitely involved there. Drug use. Drug use is one of the most inviting practices of the demonic activity. Unrepentant, unresolved sin issues. Anything in our life that the devil can use as a foothold, as God tells us in his word. So things like addictions, porn, bitterness, unresolved anger. These are things that can attract demonic activity. And what can also attract demonic activity is effective ministry. When your prayers, when your conversations, when your relationships start getting people to heaven, you're going to get opposition. And so these are some of the things that attract demonic activity. But let's get one thing straight. Demons fear Jesus. They have to obey Jesus, and they have to obey anyone that belongs to Jesus who commands them in the name of Jesus. So we know that a Christian cannot be indwelt by a demon. There is not one record in the Bible of a follower of Christ being indwelt. We can be attacked. We can be influenced. We can be tempted. We can be bullied, but not indwelt. A demon cannot take up residence in a vessel that houses the Holy Spirit of God. And so we are secure in that. Uh, we have a position paper uh, on this topic from years ago. Out of that CVC position paper, uh, we have this phrase written in it. It says, an individual Christian's life can become influenced by demons, especially if that person does not know about or make use of the weapons of spiritual warfare that are taught throughout the Bible and emphasized in Ephesians 6. The teaching of the scriptures is that Christians cannot be controlled against their wills by demonic habitation. Followers of Christ have the king himself dwelling in them, and the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. That's when you say amen. <laughs> so if you are in Christ... You have the power of Christ to resist demonic attack and demonic influence. But without Jesus, you are absolutely unarmed. You are defenseless. You are outgunned and you are vulnerable. Or if you're a Christian, but you don't know how to operate or you've set down your weaponry as an identity, as a child of God, then you're not using the spiritual um, arsenal at your disposal. So I'm not trying to scare us, but this is all just one more reason to get serious about your relationship with Jesus. So let's make sure we have accurate theology when it comes to the devil and demons. We tend to either give them too much credit or we tend to neglect giving them any credit for the issues and problems in our lives and our families and the world today. Now speaking of theology, demons know their theology. Look again at what this demon says in verse 34. He says to Jesus, have you come to destroy us? Why would he say that? And then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon isn't omniscient. He doesn't know everything. But he knows Jesus and he knows the future because God has made it known. In 1 John 3.8, we see the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why the demon's going to have you come to destroy us. He knows what's coming. It also knows the identity, the authority, and the power of Christ. 
It's fearful of Jesus because he knows that Jesus is superior, that he's divine, that he's able to command and control him, that this is God in the flesh. This is the Holy One, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. And I love this moment as this showdown takes place because Jesus, in front of all the people gathered watching this demonic disruption, does this. Without a big stink, without lights or music or potions, there's no incantations, there's no yelling or screaming or arguing, there's no dancing around a fire. All Jesus does is speak. And he says, be silent and come out of him. And with the power of his word, Jesus commands the demon to be silent and to leave. The original language is really a little bit more forceful. It probably sounded more like shut up and get out. Really what we see happening here. So the power of Christ is exercised, is put in action. And I love the fact that the one who said to creation, be made. And the one who said to the raging storm, be still. And the one who said to sick people, be healed, looked at this demon and said, be quiet and be gone. (laughs) This is the authority of Christ being exercised. Now it's interesting, we see here that the demon is identifying Jesus as the Holy One of God, but Jesus is saying, be quiet. Why? We'll see this again in a minute. Why is Jesus shushing the demon from identifying who he is? We believe there's two strong reasons for that. One is that the Jewish people were waiting for a political and military-oriented Savior. Their, their definition of the Savior was one who's going to come and rescue them from the oppression of Rome. So every time you see the people get a strong sense that Jesus might be the Messiah, they, they try to thrust him into the limelight to be their Savior from Rome. Well, that's not his mission. So he doesn't want them getting wind that he's really the Messiah yet because it's going to start the crazy train of people trying to do that kind of stuff to him, right? The other is he doesn't want advertisement or marketing from demons. It's inappropriate. It's unholy. It also could lead to people thinking that demons give credible statements. So even though what the demon is saying is true and accurate, Jesus doesn't want them marketing for him. He doesn't want them endorsing them or advertising them. Be quiet. Be quiet. He silences them. He shushes them. So this is what we see all coming down. So as believers in Christ, as we kind of look at this whole situation, we're reminded that as children of God, we have no need to fear the demonic, but we also don't want to be ignorant of it either. We're told in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I just want to pause. I want you to think about some of your most difficult battles that you've had or might be in right now. And overlay this verse with it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sometimes the situations in our lives are the manifestations or the puppets of something more sinister in the background. That's not always the case. Our struggles uh, usually have three culprits, the flesh, the world, and the devil. We can refer to it as the evil trinity, right? The flesh is our natural fleshly desires which want to live in rebellion against God. Our natural fleshly desires are all about self-gratification. So we already have that going on. We also have the world. And when we say world, we're talking about the united system, if you will, uh, the the worldview that says we don't want God, we don't want God's authority, God's rules, so we'll just live without him. And so we live in this world that, as a system, doesn't want God's authority. And then we do have the devil. 
Now, granted, I don't think the devil is personally going to show up to some person in Broadview Heights, eat at McDonald's, and try to make his life miserable, right? But you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of demons that he's kind of a military strategist that he uses. And so it is in play. And so when we look at our lives, we look at our flesh, we look at the world, we look at the devil, and we go, we have these three things working against us. That's why the message of Christ is so important to us. Because God defeated the devil, God is redeeming the world, and he's already given us victory over the flesh through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the message of Christ which we cling to. But the devil and his demons are real, they are active, and there are going to be times when you encounter them. Uh, I had an encounter with one, I believe, about a month ago. It's not my first encounter by any means, but it's the first one in a while. A lot of you know I was coming back from the preparation trip in Israel for our study tour. I was in an airport in another country, and our group was spread out through all the hundreds of people. We're all trying to converge at our gate, and we've got to go through security. And I was with this one other pastor, and we're walking by all these people, this big crowd of people, and as I'm walking by, uh, we're going by the straps that we're going to walk into to get into the security line to clear our carry-on luggage. And as we're walking by, I hear this woman speak, and it kind of sounds like it's directed at me, but I'm not sure. I'm having a conversation. And I take a few steps, and the pastor goes, did you hear that? And I went, I heard something, but what did you hear? He goes, that woman looked right at you and said, I hope you burn in hell. I went, well, that's not your typical greeting, you know? <laughs> And I go, I thought, that, I thought that's what I heard, but I didn't think she was talking to me. And so next thing you know, I, I get in line, and we're meandering through the line to get to the passport clearance and then the security scanner. And every time we get close to her, she starts, like, looking at me, getting fidgety, and she's, she's cussing at me, words I can't say right now, you know. She's spewing profanity at me, and she's saying, I hope you burn in hell. You need to stop talking. And she's, she's talking to me this way. And uh, we get up there, get through the passport section. She's still like before the machine. She's looking at me and she's saying these things. We get through the security machine. And at the other end, she kind of comes out and she says, stop talking. I hope you burn in hell. And she's saying some other things, can't say. And then she slugs me in the arm. I'm like, I'm about to go ninja on you, you know? (laughs) One of two things is happening in this moment. You either have someone that's struggling with mental illness and they're unstable. It's very real. Mental illness is real. The body's broken. The mind's broken. The stuff is real. Or there's demonic activity. And as I assess what I was sensing, because the Holy Spirit has given us discernment, right? The Holy Spirit's given us discernment to discern good and evil. And as I looked at what I was sensing, as I looked at the outcome of what was coming from this woman, that it was targeted. I mean, I was targeted out of hundreds of people. And I'm going, I'm a child of God. I'm a spiritual leader in his community. This felt like targeting. And and the fact that it manifests itself, not just verbally, but physically, led me to believe that this is probably a demonic activity going on. I knew that in the moment, but I I I wasn't scared. I was just taken back. I was kind of stunned, right? And then I'm looking around going, I'm in an international airport. There's people with machine guns, right? My, my group is somewhere heading to the gate. I, I don't really have time to engage right now. I still kind of wish I would have. I still wish I would have just said, hey, in the name of Jesus, would you leave her alone? Just because if there was truly a demonic force going on there, that could have been a, a dear woman that could have been relieved from that situation. But this is real. This demonic stuff is real. And uh, not every demonic encounter is going to be so blatant. In fact, a lot of times it's very subtle. Like, I want you to think about the possibility. I mean, have you considered 
the possibility that some of the issues in your life, in your family, in your marriage, may have demonic influence. Think about some of the D words we've talked about. Death, destruction, deception, disunity, disruption, discouragement. We know that the flesh is at work in those situations. We know that the world is influencing those situations. But in some cases, maybe there's demonic influence as well. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, says this. He says, not all sin is caused by Satan and demons, nor is the major influence or cause of sin demonic activity. But demonic activity is probably a factor in almost all sin and almost all destructive activity that opposes the work of God in the world today. And I believe that. So if you want more information, there's, there's tons out there. You got to be very careful looking this stuff online. There's some wacky, wacky stuff out there. Um, we put up a blog yesterday at our social media and website that um, has some resources that we recommend. There's our position paper. There's uh, some theology reads and some audios that you can listen to. Also, our founding pastor, Rick Duncan, put together just a really good, solid prayer. Like if this is going on in your life, this is kind of a good prayer guide uh, for your prayer life. That's all on there. There's also some hard copies in the information center if you want. So if you're watching online, you can even click on that now. So we look at all this stuff. But for us, we don't need to be afraid. We live our life trying to be faithful to Christ, trying to help others come to Christ. And when we do that, we're going to see God at work. And as we, as we live for Christ and share Christ, we're going to see sometimes God do healings and do miracles. We're going to see lives transform. And sometimes you might encounter demonic activity. That, that's what we're seeing here as Jesus is doing this ministry in Capernaum. Uh, look again at Luke 4. Let's resume in verse 38. We'll see more of this. It says, he arose, left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Why did they appeal to Jesus? They saw him already, right? They already saw his authority demonstrated. They they knew that Jesus could do something about Peter's mother-in-law, right? Verse 39, he stood over her and rebuked the fever. He cast out that fever. He commanded that fever to leave, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. I love that. I love the fact that what did this woman do the second Jesus touched her life and changed her life? She served. Guess what happens when Jesus touches your life? When Jesus changes your life, guess what we're supposed to do with that? Serve Christ. He didn't do that so we can serve ourselves. He did that so that we can serve him. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them, and demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. He didn't want their endorsement. He didn't want their advertising because they knew that he was the Christ. And you continue to see Jesus exercising his power, exercising his authority. It's after church, they're having a meal, and all of this is going down. And so, in this place, in this moment, Jesus, the one with ultimate authority, is exercising his power over sickness and over demons. And he's demonstrating his power over all things natural and supernatural. And here's the kicker. And Jesus has given that authority to you and me if we know Christ. He's given us his authority. Look at Luke 9.1 on the screen. It says he called the 12 together, the 12 disciples. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So as Christians, our identity in Christ gives us the authority of Christ. 
So we don't live intimidated by the hardness of life or in fear of the devil or demons. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but that was the 12 disciples. Like, that wasn't for everybody. Okay, let's fast forward to Luke 10 when Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to go do ministry around the region. They come back. They debrief from their situation. In Luke 10, this is what we see. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What was Jesus telling them? He's saying, I'm giving you my power and authority on earth, but the message is more important than the miracles. The gospel is the priority. The heaven's available. The forgiveness of sins is available. That's the priority, not the miracles. The miracles serve a purpose to let people know that the message of Jesus is true. When Jesus does a miracle in your life, it's to let people know that the message of Jesus is true. If you're not sure about that, look at how this passage wraps up in Luke 4. Look at verses 42 through 44. So Jesus spends the night, Peter, Peter's mother-in-law's home, and the next day, it says, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. He's probably thinking, I just need some peace, right, from the crowds. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Why? Why did the people go after Jesus and look for him? There's more people to heal. There's more miracles that can be done. They want more of the miracles. Look what Jesus says in verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You know what that means? There were people that needed to be healed, and Jesus basically said, no, I'm not doing it, and he went on to preach. Why? Because the message was more important than the miracles. The point of the miracles is to make sure that people know the message is true. So yes, in the teaching and healing and casting out of demons, we see the authority of Christ recognized. We see the power of Christ exercised. But it was so that the message of Jesus could be emphasized. You see what happened? People wanted Jesus to stay. He said, no, I have to move on to preach this message. The priority of Jesus was preaching the gospel. And he healed people and removed demonic obstructions along the way. Now this both makes sense to us and is also a hard pill to swallow. This is where we're going to start to feel some tension as we tease this out. It makes sense because the saving of a soul is better than the healing of a body. Let me say that again because I'm not sure we all believe this. The saving of a soul is far better than the healing of a body. It's better to spend eternity in heaven having lived with sickness than to be healed of sickness and spend eternity in hell. But at the same time, we know that Jesus did heal. He just didn't heal everybody. We know that God still heals in the name of Jesus, but he still doesn't heal everybody. What a tension to live in. To be told by God that we can pray and we can ask for healing and people will get it, but not everybody. So this is the tension we live in. What do we do with it? We look at this message that we need to major on the message of Christ and minor on the miracles of Christ. So if you're a Christian, 
praying to Jesus for a miracle, the healing of a loved one or yourself or uh, for a barren womb or you're praying for a repaired relationship or a miraculous provision, keep praying, keep hoping, keep trusting because Jesus has the authority and power to make it happen. But the trusting part is the huge part because what if Jesus says no? Let me ask you this. I'm, I'm, this is a genuine, sincere question. You don't have to answer out loud. If you're compelled to, go for it. But I'm not, that's not my point. My point is this. If the only thing Jesus ever did for you was save your soul, is that enough? Amen. Is it enough? Is it enough that Jesus saved your soul, but you don't get better? Or your loved one doesn't get better? Or you don't conceive that child? Or you don't get that provision? See, this kind of distills down our, the authenticity of our faith and what we believe, truly believe. Because I think we say that with our mouth, but if God were to sift our heart, sometimes it might sound like this. If you do the healing, then I'll believe. If you give me this thing, then I'll follow. God, if you show up, then I'll commit my life to you. Someone, come on, some of you know that, Lord. If you do this... I'll, I'll be a missionary in Africa, I'll do whatever you right? We do this game, and sometimes God's like, <laughs> careful what you ask for. <laughs> but if all he did was save your soul, is that enough? Is that enough? A lot of you know that we've been emphasizing prayer as a church over the last year or two. We're trying to increase our prayer cultivation. That's why next year with Daniel Henderson, or next week with Daniel Henderson is emphasizing prayer. But when you think of majoring on the message of Christ and minoring on the, message, the miracles of Christ, that will even play itself out in our prayer life, like what we pray for. I read a very convicting quote this last week from another pastor. This is what he said. He said, we spend more prayer energy trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than trying to keep the lost people out of hell. Like, let that sink in. We spend more energy in our prayer life trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than lost people going to heaven instead of lost people going to hell. So does that mean we're not supposed to pray for them? No, God said ask, ask, ask for the healing, ask for the provision, but it's not the priority. The priority is the message. So it's not the hope for a miracle or that the prayer for a miracle is bad. Jesus encouraged us to do so, but Jesus didn't die for us to have healthy bodies. Jesus died on the cross so we could have redeemed souls. That's the priority. And so this message is the one that needs to be emphasized. This gospel, this is the priority of Christ, so it should be our priority as well. That in Jesus, the lost can be found. In Jesus, the sinner can be forgiven. In Jesus, you can become a beloved child of God. In Jesus, your life has tremendous meaning and worth and value. In Jesus, you can go to heaven. In Jesus, you can have Christ's authority and power at work in your life and at work through your life. In Jesus, you can have peace instead of anxiety. In Jesus, you can have joy instead of sorrow. In Jesus, you can have freedom instead of oppression. In Jesus, you can be part of God's mission to rescue souls. The message of Christ possesses humanity's greatest hope. So let's live for Christ's message whether we get the miracle or not. So what do you do with that? 
Well, the first point of application is very clear. If you don't know Christ, respond to his invitation to come into relationship with him. Some of you know what it's like to get beat up. You're getting beat up by the flesh. You're getting beat up by the world. You're getting beat up by the devil, maybe. There comes a moment when you hear the truth of the gospel, you hear about your need for Jesus, and it shines a light on your sin, and you're faced with a choice. I either need to admit that I'm a sinner and come to Christ, or I just keep running. Maybe today some of you are tired of running. And if that's you today, and you realize no matter how much money you have, no matter how much stuff you have, no matter how many friends you have, there's still an emptiness in here, that's Jesus shouting into your heart, you need him. And so in light of all that we've talked about, maybe that's the one thing that's highlighted in your spirit. Here's my recommendation for you. Come to Christ. And it's simple as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you need the Lord. Admit that you've run from him. Just admit it. Just admit that you need the Lord. B, believe. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave so that you can have victory over sin and death and that you can go to heaven. Believe that. And then C, commit your life to following him. We don't add Jesus to our life like a little shiny bling accessory, right? We commit to follow Jesus, to surrender our life to Jesus. If that's you today, uh, I would say in the next few minutes, tell the Lord that. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe, you know, profess your belief in Jesus and then commit your life to following him. And if you do that, we want to celebrate that with you. In your program, there's a response card. And on that response card is a place that says, today I'm placing my faith in Jesus as my Savior. Mark that. If you're watching online, you can send us an email at connect at cvconline.org. Say, I'm giving my life to Christ. We're going to get this. Give us a phone number, an email, something to get in touch with you. And we'll get back in touch with you and celebrate with you and then tell you how to grow in this relationship with the Lord. And so we, that's the first step. The second is, if you're a follower of Christ, man, keep praying for the miracles, keep praying for those things, but maybe it's time to elevate and emphasize the message of Christ in your life. Let, let, let your prayers and your conversations um, be driven by the need that people have for Christ. And so whatever your life's about, maybe there just needs to be that tweak that your prayer life and what you say and what you do needs to be more about the message of Christ than the miracles of Christ. Preach the message of this good news as God gives you open doors. We're called to be everyday missionaries where we live and where we work and where we play. And so we then major on the message, minor on the miracles. I don't know what that looks like in your life exactly, but I'm sure the Lord is telling you now, just obey that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Lord, I know that in this room there are people who are discouraged, people that are beat up. Lord, there's people sitting here today or watching online, and they look good on the outside, dressed nice, big smiles, but on the inside they're miserable. In Jesus' name, would you just reveal their deep need for you? And today would they surrender? Would they yield? Would they give up to you and admit that they're a sinner? Believe upon the death and resurrection of Jesus for forgiveness of sins and commit their life to following you. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that today was a day of encouragement. Lord, you have given us your power and authority. We don't need to be intimidated. 
We don't need to get beat down. We can take this authority that you've given us. And we can live by it. Whatever hardships in our life, Lord, we know that it can bring encouragement. It can bring victory in some of the deepest areas of our life. And I pray my brothers and sisters will grab a hold of that today. And that it will make a difference in their life and in the lives of the people that you've put them around. And so do your work, we ask, in Jesus' name. And we all sit together.